Erin Ruff, and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. Today on the show, I'm going to take you back to a conversation that I had up in New York in January. I was there, along with 40,000 other people, attending NRF's Big Show Retail Conference. And one of the biggest things that stuck out to me was the sheer number of panels and conversations focusing on women in the industry. If you take a minute to look at the numbers, they can be pretty stark. While women represent about 60% of the people working in retail, only 10% hold executive board roles. And last year, female-founded businesses only raised about half the amount of money in venture capital funding than men did. It's not that women are suddenly facing more issues than they have previously, but people are talking about it more. Given that we're in this new era of the Me Too movement, gender disparities and the unique challenges that women in particular face in the workforce are becoming inescapable topics that retailers have to address. I wanted to dig into these conversations more and discuss things like raising venture capital funding and closing the wage gap. I sat down with two women in retail focusing on these issues, Sutian Dong, who is a partner at the venture capital firm Female Founders Fund, and Jennifer Braunschweiger, who is the VP of brand marketing at women's clothing and styling company MM LaFleur. Before we dive into our conversation, here's a quick word from our sponsor. If you truly want to grow your e-commerce business, it will only happen in one way by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software promises this, but never really delivers. Klaviyo, on the other hand, is different. Klaviyo helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening to and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to turn that information into valuable marketing messages. That's why 10,000 plus innovative brands have switched to Klaviyo. All right, let's dive in. Hello from NRF's Big Show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. So today at this year's Big Show, there's more attention than ever on female voices. So that's exactly what I want to talk about today. Female representation, leadership, entrepreneurship in the retail industry. So in an industry like many that is still predominantly run by white men, the big question is how do retailers and brands reach gender equality and in what role do companies play in empowering women in all different industries? You both focus on these questions um, and come at them from different angles. Maybe we could start by talking about how your work intersects with empowering women in the workforce? That's a great question. So, so I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I, you know, the, the short answer is that I think that is effectively what we do, right? At Female Founders Fund, we're an early stage internet and software investor. We invest in female founders exclusively. And we were founded in 2015 with this view of the world that there is going to be this new wave of entrepreneurs who are starting venture scale businesses. And that these entrepreneurs just look different than they had in the past, right? They weren't your prototypical white male Ivy League computer science dropout, but they were rather women who had interesting domain expertise, who had unique points of view about the world, who had aspirations to build large companies that would revolutionize existing markets or create new ones. And that this was a trend that we as investors could support at the earliest stages by providing capital, but also some of the other, we'll call it, you know, services, value add, intangibles that hopefully help get a company from zero to one and then to scale. And so in our view, the way to empower women in the workplace is to empower more women to start companies that go on to hire 
people who believe in the same vision. Yeah. And Jennifer, how about you? I mean, I know that the mission at MM is deeply rooted in women in the workforce. So how do you intersect with this conversation? (laughs) There's a lot going on in your question. (laughs) I feel like we could talk about it for three weeks and and still not run out of things to say. MM is intersecting with this question in a lot of different ways. So as you said, MM LaFleur is a company that sells clothing and styling services to professional women. Our core belief is that when women succeed at work, the world is a better place. So we sell a product that is deliberately meant to help her in that success. And we also um, really create content and community and all sorts of things around helping her succeed. In addition, we are a female-run company. So we have female founders and really most of our staff is female. So we are leading by example as well as leading with our product. You know, one thing here I think of though is that as we have this conversation and as we want these numbers to come up, my real dream is that we get to a place not just where the numbers are even, but where we're able to talk about women not as a monolithic group, you know, and really sort of understanding that success for women takes on all sorts of different looks. And and it's not really just one thing, but that we need women in the room for all sorts of different reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about some of the biggest barriers and how they're changing over time. Sushin, I wanted to start with you. I did a story, as we were talking about earlier, I did a story last year talking about the imbalance, and the inequality for mm-hmm. female entrepreneurs seeking venture capital funding. And through reporting that story, I found out that in 2017, women only got half the amount of venture capital funding than men did. So I wanted to talk from your perspective, from the VC world, What is holding entrepreneurs back, female entrepreneurs, from receiving that funding? That's a great question and certainly one that we think about a lot because we invest, but we invest typically at the earliest stages of a company's life, which for companies that have aspirations to be those billion-dollar-plus brands in the future, we're not the only source of capital that they'll raise. And so it's something that we help our portfolio founders think about pretty deeply, you know, what happens after they raise money from Female Founders Fund. And so a couple things here. One, I will go ahead and say that the numbers are not close to parity and not Mm -hmm. close to where they should be. Female founders have, I think, a harder time raising capital than their male counterparts. Female founders raise far less capital than their male counterparts and oftentimes at lower valuations. However, when we look at the history over, we'll call it the last five years, the number of female founders who are raising Series A's has gone up on a pretty, it's a linear increase year over year, but it's gone up on a pretty steady pace from 2013 to now. I do think this is a good early indication or a promising early indication that more women are raising capital, not just seed financing, but raising Series A and growth capital to scale their companies. I think in terms of, you know, what has historically held women back from raising in line with with the market, it's a complicated answer, right? I will point to a couple of things that are changing, which is that one, more women have grown up in large tech companies, whether it is a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon or Twitter, who have the, we'll call it ecosystem expertise and technical chops to go and start their own companies. And so there's more diversity of founders that are starting businesses. The second thing that's changing is that I think the the investor landscape and the investor perspective and mindset is changing as well. Data has shown that 
diverse companies, which are more often than not led by diverse founding teams, go on to outperform in both the public and private markets. And though this has been public information for a very long time, only in the past couple of years have funds across all stages started taking a serious look at their portfolio construction and really asking themselves, well, what are we missing out on, right? Ultimately, for a lot of funds, the question is, well, what money are we leaving on the table by not investing in female founders and perhaps in in brands as well? And so that piece on the investor side is changing as well. The question that you asked, like what historically has prevented female founders from raising capital and scaling businesses? I think there, again, there's a lot of things that go into it. But what we see from our vantage point is that things are changing, albeit slower than I'd ideally like them to, but things are changing over time as more women are, are pursuing that venture scale path. And as more venture investors are being active in really deploying dollars towards female founders. Yeah. So you seem encouraged by the fact that there's more diversity and there's more representation at the early levels, whether they're actually making the same amount of money, that's still a long-term problem. I do think there's time that has to go into this as well, right? There are companies in our portfolio that I am very, very excited about their public company prospects, right? Their IPO prospects. But that takes time to scale into those stories. And so I think over the next couple of years, we'll have a lot of interesting things to, to watch and look out for as you see startups that were startups, you know, two people companies in 2013, 14, really get to that escape velocity stage and, and create liquidity and follow the, the example of Katrina Lake at Stitch Fix and, and really put additional stakes in the ground for female founded companies. Yeah. And some of those issues, I spoke with the co-founder of MM LaFleur, Sarah LaFleur, about you know what it takes to raise capital. But I'm also curious from your perspective, Jennifer, now that the company has scaled and you know built itself on this mission of supporting women in the workforce, you spoke earlier on a panel just about some of the differences that you noticed in going to different stores and talking to customers, you know whether they're in Houston or San Francisco. What are you noticing when you're going to those stores those customers, what are the barriers to them and the differences that they might have in their workforce? Yeah, so as we were talking about, MM Lafleur intersects with this issue, not just because we're a female-run company, but also because we're actively trying to support women's professional success. And I think part of why this problem has resisted a solution is because it's incredibly complicated. So people don't invest in female-run companies, but they're not necessarily identifying the reason that they're doing that as because it's run by a woman. They think that it's because they don't believe in the product or, you know, there are all these different things that are contributing to it. And so when we're out there really talking to our customers about the issues that she's facing in the workplace, it's very tangled out there. And because we're selling clothing, which is about appearance and about reputation and presentation, we hear it in a very subtle way. So we talked to her about really the difficulties, even just in being in the workplace in a woman and how to present yourself in a way that is taken seriously and respected and you know, as you're pointing out in San Francisco, we hear from women that they are in a company where all the guys are wearing jeans and hoodies and they don't really want to dress like that. But if they're too dressed up, then everybody thinks they're interviewing. So these things are very tangled and she may not identify her lack of success as being connected to the fact that she's not wearing a hoodie. And yet on the other hand, like, how do you put yourself out there as a woman in a way that allows you to rise? 
you mentioned Houston, you know, in Houston, we were hearing from a lot of women who work in the oil and gas industry, and there are very clear ways that they are supposed to dress, which is conservative and yet of the moment, you know, it's, it's a really tricky combination for women. And so, and the different industries all have different pieces to them that make navigating this for women very hard. And that's before she opens her mouth to speak. So I think it's a complicated situation for women in many ways. Yeah. One of the solutions, I think, kind of comes down to community networking and kind of power in numbers, which is something that we've also heard on several panels already during the conference. Part of that is visibility. And I know the Female Founders Fund does a lot of events that will bring female executives together, but also help bridge that gap to venture capitalists and introduce them. I wondered if you could both share some insights about community building and how that plays a role in you know, building up women in these industries. I think community building for us, we think about it in two main ways. One is community building on the female entrepreneur side. How do you hopefully affect more than just the female founders in your own portfolio, but also create the platform that enables different female founders to connect, share best practices around fundraising, for example, find people to hire who are looking to work in more inclusive environments, and really get rid of this notion that a female founder is a symbol or token of funds, right? But really to embrace the notion that when female founders succeed, other female founders benefit from that that shine effect. The same goes for female venture capitalists as well. So in 2015, I was at another firm and I had started this women in VC database with another woman named Jessica Peltz who had just started in VC. And it was at the time a, we'll call it a female light environment in venture capital. Uh, <laughs> a nice light. way of putting it. <laughs> um, and our first event that we had, we had like 15 women in the room. And I remember thinking like, oh, 15 women in New York. That's not bad. That's really not bad at all. But now fast forward to today, that directory has grown to over 800 women across over 500 different funds across 20 different countries, right? And what's important about that is that though fairly simplistic, what people are doing is using that community and connection to really find ways to leverage each other professionally, right? Whether it is by finding co-investors, whether it is by finding follow-on investors, whether it is by sharing exciting deals in their portfolio, what you're saying is that both female founders and female VCs are really looking at the communities that they've built and asking themselves the question, well, how do I help the people who are like me, right? How do I share that knowledge around, oh, what things you should put in your pitch deck for your Series B, who you should be talking to, what metrics you should be emphasizing? Because the reality is that that data, the more it's shared, the more people can take advantage of that and the more people can experience success. And also the reality is that men have been doing this forever, right? Creating these networks that enable them to help each other. And I think what we're seeing is that women on both sides of the table are doing that and and really propelling each other forward. Mm -hmm. To me, everything happens because of who you know. So yes, Mm -hmm. those communities are super important. I do think, however, that part of it is about access to power and being able to ask. And women are kind of penalized for asking directly or have to get more comfortable asking than men often do. And then, you know, on a one-to-one basis, women are asked to be mentors all the time. They want to mentor, but 
there is a way in which just pure mentorship can be another drain on a woman's time and really just another way in which she is expected to help people. And that the key, and you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this from the conversation, is around sponsorship. So it's not just finding someone who can give you advice and who can help you, but really finding someone who is sitting at the table where the decisions are being made or who has access to saying yes or no to giving you money. And it's that person. So being kind of targeted in who you're connecting with and then being willing to ask for the help that you need is important. And then it's not just one. So there's research that shows that it's actually three women around a table in a boardroom that makes a difference and that there's too much of the one woman in the room, they've checked the box, it's all good. Whereas in fact, like you need three women. So you need more women. You need women who are willing to ask for things. You need women who have access to power. So that again is part of why this becomes a very complicated problem because it's not just groups of women can help each other and advise each other and support each other, but you need to make it more than that in order to really push forward. There's research that shows that some of the best ideas come from people whom you don't know that well. So not just from your immediate circle or from people who share a background to you because you're sharing a pool of knowledge with them, but really pushing out into those loose connections. So at MM Lafleur, we have started hosting what we call loose connections parties, which are where we invite our community. We're sort of acting as super connector for our community, inviting them to invite other professional women whom they know to meet each other because it's really through those kind of more farther out connections that some of the really great information comes in. So it's about kind of getting out of your comfort zone in that in many different ways to really help turn it from a community into something that is driving this forward more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the part of community and and networking that also falls into what is the culture of a company or greater of an industry? And are there spaces and openings for women to easily be able to bring up these ideas and to create these communities. There was a great panel earlier this morning. We heard Carolyn Tassad from P&G talking about how it's not about fixing women, but fixing the behaviors that perpetuated inequalities within the workplace. And so I just wonder, you know, what are some of those behaviors that need to be tweaked to make it easier for women to be able to speak up and to bring other women into those conversations, to have those seats at the table, not just one, but many women? What would a perfect culture or a culture that embraces women look like? (laughs) I would love to see that. And I don't think it exists, but I would love both of your perspectives on how do retailers, how do venture capital firms both try to get there? I think there's one other piece of the DNI puzzle that more people need to think about, which is belonging, right? So diversity and inclusion is great. You may, as you said, have one person in the boardroom, but how do you empower women to speak once they're in the room, right? Once they have the seat, how do they feel comfortable knowing that their ideas will be taken seriously, right? And that's something that I think firms and companies can change culturally by creating, and you made a good point, which is, well, what can companies be doing to better structure and environment, right, where diverse perspectives are heard. And I do think that companies can really 
push themselves to take it one step further by saying, what creates belonging within for women within my firm, right? For VC firms, the question would be, well, what creates belonging for potential entrepreneurs who may want to pitch me, right? How do I show people that if you are a woman and starting an amazing retail concept that we are going to take your idea seriously, right? And I think a lot of that involves just really putting resources and effort and money versus just talk towards those initiatives. And I know from a VC perspective, there is a very clear difference between the number and types of firms who say we want to invest in more women and the number and types of firms who actually do invest in more women. And the firms who do invest in and have robust portfolios of female founders and also companies targeting the female consumer say that their deal flow gets better and better the more they do because it shows the market in a really meaningful way that they are putting money and time and resources behind this market versus saying, oh, this is something that's nice that we'd like to have. But for any number of XYZ reasons, we're not seeing the founders that we'd want to invest or some other, and excuse my French, but you know, like bullshit excuse around why this isn't happening. Well, in order to get a diverse set of opinions, you first need some diversity. And that's part of my earlier point around not all women are the same. So you need older women, you need women of color, you need women who come from different educational backgrounds, different class backgrounds. And I think part of the, you know, just check off the box with one woman, the problem there is, and I've seen this at other companies where I've worked, is that sometimes that woman is not the fit. So you have the one woman, that woman doesn't work out and suddenly that's it. So you need really a much broader group of people in order for this to start to make a difference. And I said that, as I said, that diversity comes in all sorts of different ways, not just gender. So really, the first thing is you have to bring those people in, in order to even start to create a culture where different voices are heard is first, you need the people. Second, I think we really have to work on this idea that women speaking up is a negative thing, you know, that she's bitchy for doing that. And I think that's something that women themselves share. So I don't think that that's just a punishing moment for men. I think that's a sort of social expectation we have around how it's appropriate for women to ask for something. And really, we need to open up the ways that women can speak at all. And that comes at Again, as I said, it really starts with first having a diverse group of women in the room. And only once we're able to allow women to ask and then have them hear yes or no freely, can we start to create a culture where those conversations can be had yeah. more openly. I think it's a great point that you brought up that we're not just talking about just women as a blanket statement, right? I Correct. mean, women come in all different shapes, color, sizes, Correct. everything, right? And when you look at representation, especially for women of color, it's even starker that there is such a lack of representation in, in VC and in, in retail and all other industries. And so I just wonder if companies are doing enough to think through all the different lenses and all the intersectionalities that we have when we talk about supporting more women within the workforce. Are companies thinking more about that? I mean, in terms of what MMO4 tries to do with its own workforce or supporting its customers, how do you think through different lenses? Well, we think about it all the time. (laughs) So yes, you know, we are really trying to build the most open, diverse, talented workforce that we can. We are mostly women. So then 
being able to bring diversity into that group of women is extremely important to us. You know, I would say in general, we wouldn't be having this conversation if companies in general as a whole were doing enough around this because it's not fixed. It's not even close to fixed that the stat that you cited earlier where we're actually going backwards is beyond alarming. So there is an enormous amount of work to do. And I do think that it is because it's such a complicated problem, companies have to, you know, pick their end of the string and start pulling on it in whatever way they can. Yeah. And from the VC perspective, could you also speak to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the thing that people are running up against is that from a VC perspective, for example, looking for deal flow actively beyond your existing networks is hard, right? And so, you know, this is sort of the, the human truth of everyone being lazy, right, and wanting and just preferring to do the easy thing. And for startups, more more than VCs, it's just, just that you never have enough time, money, resources to do all the things that you want. So yes, it's, it's around picking one thing and really starting there. But I think for VCs, it's important to do work around investing in more diverse founders, in more diverse companies and industries, and then also in investing in a more diverse workplace and culture. But all this stuff is very long lead time, right? And I think the sticking point for a lot of investors can be, well, this seems hard. And I have this great deal flow that comes inbound to me from my existing networks, whether they're my old professional connections or my college connections or my MBA or whatever it may be. And why would I do the hard work of finding communities that I may not be necessarily tapped into, investing in building relationships, finding the best entrepreneurs who come out of there, convincing them to take my capital. Why would I do that when it can come so much more easily if I just don't have to do anything, right? Right. And so there is an aspect of companies really needing to recognize that there's a lot of work involved in doing this. And the benefit of doing that is that you will have differentiated deal flow that other funds don't have. And as the reality of quote unquote software eating the world continues to permeate the industries that you'd historically think were, were less touched by technology as they become more and more tech enabled, the work that you do now will enable you to get ahead of the curve and to be a leader in spaces where you're just first to market because you've done the work and made the connections that have helped you find the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, you know, one piece of this question comes down to the pay gap. There was a pretty alarming statistic that came out late last year. The World Economic Forum said it could take 202 years for global parity in wages between men and women. There was a session earlier today with some founders, including Annie Dunn from Bonobos, Rebecca Minkoff, Diane Dietz from Roden and Fields, and they were talking about other non-monetary benefits. I think they're also working towards closing that gap, but they also talked about more flexibility in other areas. So I want you know how you weighed in on what are the other things that companies should be doing in order to help women in other ways as they move toward closing that pay gap. Well, I'm going to jump in here and say that we closed the pay gap. We MM Lafleur has a transparent set of pay bands, so everyone who is on the same level is paid the same, and that's just clear across the board. So, I personally don't think there's any excuse for this anymore. We have the numbers out there. Companies are able to look at how much different people are paid and they can fix the problem. So part of this to me, like, let's just fix it. And, you know, that's one of the joys of really being at an exciting company like M.M. Lafleur's 
you can just do it. Just do it. <laughs> um, I guess one, one question off that, right, is you're very agile and you have the flexibility to do that as a young company who is very mission driven. Are you encouraged by other digitally native vertical brands? Are they also similarly positioned to just do it? I can't speak to lots of other brands, so I don't know. What I'm saying, though, is that if you believe in this, you can put your money where your mouth is and you can lead by example and you can start fixing some of these problems. So there's so much conversation around, like, what can we do? And it's like, well, why not just do it? That's actually kind of the whole point of the exciting work environment that we're in right now is that people are just deciding to fix problems. And I think, you know, as a business community, if we put our minds to fixing this problem, we can just fix the problem. So what else can we do? I don't think, actually, I think the pay gap is a huge part of it. It is an incredibly important problem to fix. There are lots of other ones. So along with that should come paid family leave. And that's really around helping fathers, not just mothers, because right. why should it only be the mother who is taking care of the newborn? So at MM LaFleur, we have paid family leave where the men get leave time just like the women do. And so do the warehouse employees. So it is equal. Like there are a number of these different policies that companies can put into place to start attacking this. I appreciate your point very much that it's not easy this stuff is hard. It is a complicated problem. It is hard to fix. But you can, as I said, just pick something and fix it. Along with fixing or really closing the pay gap, I think one thing that startups have the power to affect meaningful change on is closing the equity gap for founders and for many early employees and many employees of startups, wealth creation comes with liquidity events when a company goes public or is sold. And so I think it's super important not just to say, well, are we paying everyone who's director the same, right, or within the same band, but are we compensating them on the equity side? Are they owning as much of the company as everyone else, right? And that's one thing that ultimately will go on to create these amazing downstream effects, right, where women or, or anyone who's worked at a company who experiences a liquidity and wealth creation event, then they have more means to go on and start their own thing and really try to solve a problem that they see in their personal and professional lives. So that's one point that I think is really important around equity compensation and enabling the new generation, the next generation of entrepreneurs to succeed. So we're small investors in, in Rent the Runway. And Jen has, you know, one anecdote that she likes to talk about is, hey, when I started this company, I looked at the companies that were best in class tech businesses. I asked myself, well, what did they do? And let me do the same thing. And then I'll know that I'm on par with the Apples and the Googles of the world. Then now, you know, Red the Runway is fairly large. Now she took a step back and said, well, hey, like Apple and Google treat their warehouse employees on a different level than they do their corporate employees. Why is that, right? Like, why have I been assuming that these are best practices when in fact they may not be, right? So she now has paid leave for her warehouse employees. She has equal benefits for her warehouse employees. And what that's done, instead of the fear, right, that, oh, God, you're going to start sinking money into this and it's all going to go out the window, is that you have incredible employee retention, incredible loyalty to the brand because you're seeing a company that is really putting money where their mouth is and starting to say, how do we think about our employees the same? And how do we start thinking about benefits that extend across the board, knowing that for each employee who comes to work healthy, happy, 
well with their family, they're going to contribute much more to the growth and success of this business than if we tried to save a couple of cents, right, on this benefit that's segregated by division or segregated by seniority. Sure. And that's great to see startups doing that. And there seems like more conversation, more actual action happening with startups. What will it take for big box stores to really commit to these things too? I do think this is the reason why I know, for example, P&G has a fairly built out incubator and accelerator program. I do think this is a lot of the reason why these large companies are so interested in partnering and really working with smaller companies. One, of course, the innovation that you have firsthand access to, but two, the fact that you see what's happening when small companies that aren't limited by bureaucracy or aren't limited by history, right, start to do something new. And so there's the seed of an idea. And I do think that the second part is, is that ultimately it's going to be seeing where, where the talent goes, right? The best people want to work for the best companies. And as a big company, if you're not providing what is top of market and you're not creating the culture and, and creating the means, more importantly, to even have that culture and have that conversation, then you're going to see both attrition in your existing workforce and a much harder time competing with the startups that I think are just treating their employee base and their company culture on a more holistic level. And I I think customers are the same. So yes, I agree with you about staff talent. I think that's true also of customers, that customers are looking for companies that share their values and that are clear about what their values are and then act according to them. And there are a number of different ways to express that, but the customers aren't looking for places to be neutral. They're looking for places to have a point of view and then to have a point of view that they put into their product, that they put into how they lead their businesses and how they behave as companies in the world. And I do think customers respond to that. I also think that companies should do it because it is the right thing to do, but there is a business case to be made for it as well. So as we have been discussing, companies that are more diverse in their leadership and are really sort of building a stronger pipeline of people all the way through perform better. If they're not persuaded by the customers coming to them and the talent coming to them, maybe they're persuaded by the business results that also come from bringing more diversity and more women into the workforce. Yeah. And we're at this interesting moment where more companies are choosing to, yes, do the right thing, support more women in various ways that their companies have equal pay, equal benefits. You know, we're also seeing blowback from controversies erupt at big companies, and then they tackle this question as an aftermath. So I wonder where we move in 2019. Where does the conversation and where does the action come into play? How do you think this will continue to grow this year? Nothing is ever a straight line. So I would really like the answer to be that we will continue to see improvement in the form of more women coming into leadership positions and coming into the pipeline in a way that sets us up for a more equal workforce in the future. I also realistically think that things go up and they go down and then they go back up again. So yes, you have seen some companies responding to crises in the last year and making efforts to manage them. Those are just the ones we know about. That's a very fair point, right? And I mean, there's a lot happening that will not come out for years if it does come out. I'd say for 2019, the thing that we're really seeing is, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, this idea of community, right? And what that means to the VC community. I do think that 
companies more and more are, are leaning on their communities in ways that they haven't in the past. And so it's not just around product innovation and, hey, what kind of feature set should we develop next, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really engaging and galvanizing the community as a core piece of business building and a core feedback mechanism for really understanding what your customers want. And so when I think about, hey, what's happening, what's going to happen in 2019 and how will companies continue to push themselves to rethink, well, what does diversity and inclusion and belonging mean for me? Or what are things that I should be doing better? Of course, there are going to be highs and lows in this path as the industry moves towards a more inclusive environment. But when it comes to, to really operating from a place that's, that's more connected, I do think that companies are have the luxury now that they did not necessarily have in the past of not needing to make these decisions from from a top-down perspective and really being able to understand the needs and wants of not just their entire employee base, but customer base. I think make decisions that are more reflective of the brand and the culture that not just the C-level of any specific business wants. Well, certainly not a topic that people will stop talking about anytime soon. I'm sure this will still very much be forefront in the industry. So thank you so much, Sutian and Jennifer, for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. And if you like the show, give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. And stay tuned for more episodes. For now, I'm Karen Ruff. And this was Conversational Commerce.